Welcome to the podcast page for Christ-Centered Lessons. You know, it's true that since creation, Satan's done everything in his power to confront, mislead, and nullify those who are faithful to God's word. And knowing that Satan would do all he could to destroy the church of the Lord, God gave us ample warnings in both the Old Testament and the New against his devices. And more importantly, God placed within the church a frontline defense to guard against such attacks. It's called the eldership. And when they fulfill their divine obligations, the church can withstand any attack, either from without or within. But sadly, Satan has made his most effective advance in the church during the last couple of generations. See, the church today is only a fragment of what it might have been. Again, if you go back and look at the early 1900s through about 1930, it showed a church growing at an average rate of 150%. So how could this have happened? What has happened? Well, just as I said that when elders fulfill their divine obligation, the church can withstand any attack, When they fail, my friends, much damage is done to the Lord's church. I can go back and think about my own experiences in my 47 years as a member of the Lord's church. And just as recently as 2005, I can remember my wife and my children and I leaving the Frisco Church of Christ in Frisco, Texas, because that eldership hired a young man for the pulpit named Douglas Young, who was a false teacher. And sadly enough, they hired him even though they had been warned of the fact that he was a false teacher. What happened four years later? That new eldership that was in place at Frisco fired Douglas Young because of false teaching. In 2011, again, my wife and I left the Waterview Church of Christ because the eldership there an eldership made up of John Orr and Jim Steiger, Jim Alexander, Thurman Alexander, Jerry Barker, and Danny Hawk allowed men into the pulpit who were false teachers, men who they had been warned about both verbally and in writing, showing examples of the false teaching that these men allowed or taught. One event was so dramatic that one of the men they invited in began preaching blasphemy against Jesus Christ. And not one of those elders stood up to stop his mouth. And in fact, one of the ministers, a man by the name of Myron Bruce, instead of stopping the man's false teaching, got up and left the auditorium. My friends, that's not the answer. And most recently in 2020, my wife and I left the Wiley Church of Christ where we've been members nine years because the elders there, Ron Patterson, Ron Potts, Mike Stringfellow, Donnie Moore, Chris Pollard, and Dennis Thompson allowed their preacher, Steve Miner, to preach falsehoods from the pulpit and not one of them stood up to stop his mouth or correct him. 
And on top of that, they allowed a man by the name of John Hobbs, a man who preaches false doctrine on divorce and remarriage, to enter the pulpit on multiple occasions. My friends, these are the kind of actions or inactions, if you will, of elderships that destroy the Lord's church and they need to be stopped. In Titus, the first chapter, the 11th verse, Pasha says, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Here, the inspired writer, the Apostle Paul, reveals the will of God concerning false teachers in the Lord's church. God clearly wants their mouth stopped. It doesn't matter whether it's the pulpit preacher. It doesn't matter whether it's someone you've brought in from the outside. It doesn't matter if it's a member of that particular church. God wants their mouths stopped. Why? Because of damage done by such deceivers subvert whole families from the faith. And when I'm talking to subvert, I mean the overturns or overthrows or destroys someone's faith. And the scripture needs, leaves no doubt about the motive of false teachers under discussion. Paul states it's for filthy lucre's sake. You know, see, teaching a man-made or a man-pleasing doctrine for financial gain was the practice of the mind poisoners in the Lord's church on the Isle of Crete. And Paul warns elsewhere that the inordinate love of money is the root of all evil. See, I need to be preaching for the love of God, for the love of souls that can be touched, not for the pleasing ears of those who might contribute more to the message that I'm bringing. The text is emphatic, my friends, that false teachers' mouths must be stopped. The words of false teachers must be exposed and refuted in order to preserve the doctrinal purity of the Lord's church and to save innocent babes in Christ. I cannot tell you the number of times that I have baptized those and they will go to a church and they'll hear something false and come back and say, well, Chuck, that's not what you told us or what the Bible teaches. But I was at a church of Christ. Well, my friends, just because it says church of Christ on the side of the building, unfortunately does not mean that you're going to hear the word of the Lord. False teachers' mouths must be stopped. This must be done in order to obey God who commanded it to be done in John 14, 15. It must be done that, so that those who love truth may be made aware of their sin, repent, and be sound in the faith, Titus 1, 13. False teachers' mouths must be stopped, must be made silent, must be closed, must be shut. You go back and study the verses preceding and following Titus 1.11. The statement revealing God's desire that certain mouths must be silent, it may be readily seen that this 
brief epistle of Titus of the three chapters here is a personal letter written to a young preacher who Paul loves so much. And the purpose of the letter relates to Titus's purpose on Crete, which is to set in order the things that are needed in the churches. See, Titus was a tremendous contrast to the false teachers that were found on Crete who preached for base financial gain and that he had an earnest care in his heart for God's people and thus was commanded by Paul for not uh, uh, to not seek to make gain, but to preach for the love of God and of the souls there. You know, if you go back and look at the moral and ethical climate on the Isle of Crete, it had been and was at the time of Paul's writing one of spiritual corruption. Empty chatter, lying, laziness, gluttony had become a way of life in Crete. And in their unbridled behavior, they were like wild beasts. And in their selfishness, they were lazy, lazy gluttons. And then this was on top of the culture of worldliness out of which members of the church had come. And so Paul makes reference to one of their so-called prophet years before when, uh, or who had correctly described, uh, or I'm sorry, one of their prophets who years before had correctly uh, described the morally corrupt characteristics of the Cretans. And that's found in Titus 1.12. the false teachers that would corrupt those who were new babes in Christ and, and mature in Christ. There's left no doubt in the book of Titus that their mouths were to be stopped. But my friends, who is responsible to shut the mouths of false teachers? I go back to the situation that I uh, shared with you about the Church of Christ at Wiley. Uh, Texas, when I brought the instances of false teaching and the false teacher to the elders, they said it was my responsibility to go to him. It was my responsibility to have the discussion. Well, my friends, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that the elders have the primary responsibility to shut the mouths of false teachers. Note the last qualification for elders in Titus 1.9. Holding fast or firm the faithful word that he, talking about an elder, may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict, convict those of false teaching, the gainsayers, the contradictors. So you see, according to God's word, that if the elders of a flock simply conduct themselves in the manner in which God commands, situations will be resolved to the glory of God. Why is it the elders that are responsible for shutting the mouths of false teachers? Well, elders are made such through the agency of the Holy Spirit's instructions found in the word of God. And the saints of God being involved through a study of the qualifications set forth those men by the Lord's teachings. 
The elders are then made overseers of the flock and they watch out for the souls, Hebrews 13, 17. And again, part of that responsibility is feeding the flock. And when we talk about feeding the flock, talk, think about the shepherds and, and, or farmers for that example. Are you going to feed the flock that which brings nutrition and good to their bodies? Or are you going to bring them poison to partake on? Elders are then charged with taking heed, rendering watchfulness and vigilance, not only within the flock they oversee, but also in diligent examination of themselves. They need to make sure that they stay qualified because they're not qualified for life. They're only qualified as they meet the God-given qualifications set forth for elders. And elders today, just like in the first century, are warned of apostasy. And Paul lets them know that men dealing in the crookedness will arise right within and without church, within and without the church, and outside of the church. And they need to be the ones to deal with them. Now, the gospel preacher within each congregation is obviously one who's involved by the very nature of his work in, in preventing false teaching. But when he's the one who is the false teacher, the primary responsibility in stopping the mouth of the false teacher falls upon the shoulders of the shepherds. They're the overseers. Now, granted, all Christians have a responsibility to reject the false teacher, the troublemaker who teaches false doctrine and uphold a faithful eldership and their efforts to correct and or reject him. I want to look at a few passages as we, as we deal with this particular subject. In Titus 3.10, the scripture says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Well, my friends, there has to be admonition before you can reject the divisive man. And the scriptures teach that admonition needs to come from the shepherds of the flock. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. You see, the interaction of a admonition that false teaching occurred, that it's not going to be accepted and that you need to repent of it or you're going to be set apart from the flock needs to occur. And it needs to occur starting with the eldership dealing with the false teaching. But conversely, a, a faithful preacher needs to publicly rebuke elders who are negligent in rebuking false teaching. But how does that happen if it's that preacher who's the false teacher? So how are the elders to shut the mouths of false teachers? Well, I think Paul makes it clear that those who teach things which they ought not are to be sharply rebuked. And again, we talk about this in Titus 1, uh, verses 11 and 13. He says, sharply 
which which means abruptly or curtly in a manner that that cuts, if you will, uh, from a, a definition perspective. And, and the word is found only one other time in the Greek New Testament, and it's translated sharpness, and it's found in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse ten. Now, contrary to some individuals' irrationality and ignorance of the Bible. Rebuking sharply does not exclude a spirit of meekness nor love. Again, we, you know, you know, we're trying to restore the soul of the one who speaks falsely. I'm not going to judge their intent, but we are going to judge their words against the word of God. You know, if you think back, uh, Samuel grieved in 1 Samuel 15 all night prior to rebuking King Saul. Uh, and if you look in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and, and 21, uh, we're told, but it will hurt the church. I'm sorry, before we go there, the question will say, well, will, won't it hurt the church to publicly or even privately rebuke the false teacher? No, because... We trust in God's wisdom, which is always best in dealing with problem cases in the church. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21. The passage says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In these two verses, Paul asks some rhetorical questions. He says, where is the wise? And the answer should be, he doesn't exist. Where the gospel is preached, human wisdom cannot stand. See, the Corinthians knew worldly wisdom. But it couldn't be compared to divine wisdom. He says, then where's the scribe? You know, men sometimes use the scripture to try to prove their wisdom, except the fact that scripture does not help men unless they believe and submit to the word of the cross. He says, where's the disputer of this world? The first word here, world, in this verse is from the Greek word, which means the world as it exists in time, age, the world not in rest, but in motion. So if a person who thinks he understands the spirit of the age and thus understands all, that's not true. Why? Because human wisdom cannot reach divine wisdom. Hath God not, or hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The second word for world means the world at rest. The, the wisdom of the world wisdom of the world at rest has never found God. See, the world is groping blindly in the dark. However, God has crucified through the word of the cross what the wisdom of the world could not do. Christ was crucified and he brought salvation to all that believe and obey the gospel. And this shows that the wisdom of the world is foolish because it cannot bring men to God. You see, there's too many in the church that think loving the false prophet by patting him on his pointed head is going to solve the problem. And my friends, it doesn't. 
elders are the ones that are supposed to stop the mouths of false teachers. And they're supposed to do it sharply. So let's look at just a few examples where there were those who shut the mouths of false teachers. How about in 1 Samuel 15, and we've already mentioned this, Samuel rebuking King Saul for advocating that partial obedience is acceptable to God. And my friends, even a man who preaches 90% truth, the 10% that is untruth is still false teaching and he still needs to be rebuked because partial obedience, partial truth is not acceptable to God. Moses rebuked Korah for rebelliously advocating a change in God's plans for church leadership by telling him he was against the Lord. And we can find this in number 16, 1 through 35. Think about Nathan, who sharply reproved David for holding to the position that God will accept hypocrisy. And is accepting of false teaching and then going out and trying to tell everybody else to live the way of the cross, not hypocrisy, when we won't live it ourselves? How about John the Baptist, who exercised verbal sharpness with King Herod by telling him in no uncertain terms he was living in adultery? What does he say in Matthew 14? His sharp rebuke of, it is not lawful for thee to have her, led to his heroic death. Jesus the Christ, he's our supreme example, repeatedly calling the Pharisees hypocrites of Matthew 23 and told them to their faces that Satan was their father, John 8. Paul. He, he rebuked sharply the Judaizers who sought to bind on him uh, or, or bind on men human commandments and said he did not tolerate such men for even an hour. Paul would not tolerate such men for even an hour, Galatians 2, 4 and 5. How about Peter? He rebuked in Acts 8, Simon, who was a new Christian, who had publicly implied the Holy Spirit baptism could be purchased with money. What were the Apostle Peter's words to this man? Thy money perish with thee. In other words, he told Simon he would be in hell in eternity if he continued on this course. What was the result of this strong rebuke? Did it hurt the false teacher's faith of the church? No, it woke Simon up to become aware of his departure and he repented and he began his journey anew down the road of becoming sound in the faith, saying, pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. And then in Acts chapter seven, Stephen's sharp rebuke to the unbelieving Jews for resisting the Holy Spirit. His instructions to them were calling them stiff-necked, murderers, hypocrites. Murderers? Yeah, murderers of the soul. When you teach false doctrine and it's accepted by those 
who are hearers? Do you not murder their souls? And are you not murdering your own soul by teaching falsehood? You see, the way of Christ, the way of truth is always dishonored by teachers of error and those who follow them. And it's also dishonored by elders who won't fulfill their God-given responsibility to keep the church of the Lord pure. Second Peter chapter 2 speaks a great deal about false teachers. Peter tells us that they use feigned words as they deceive. Their deception depends upon their ability to use enticing words which have no substance or foundation, but they sound good. And these feigned words of these false teachers are described by Paul as good words and fair speeches, which they use to deceive the hearts of the innocent, Romans 18 or 16, 18. So elders, my friends, do you have elders that are keeping the line of defense up? In Acts 20, 28 through 30, Paul gives a famous charge to the Ephesian elders, which says, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops, to feed the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departing, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. You see, the reason why the line of defense has to be held up and why elders have to take their God-given responsibility seriously is this passage links purity and doctrine with purity in the church. Making doctrinal purity the responsibility of bishops in the local congregation. And as overseers and shepherd of God's people, they must be doers taking the lead in this work. You see, the Lord intended for elders in each local church to be the primary line of defense against every threat to the faith. That's why Paul charged the Ephesian elders to take heed to themselves first. These elders have to be diligent students of God's word. There's no way they can hold to the faithful word if they don't know what it teaches or if they don't agree with it. And neither can they feed, exhort, or teach others in that which they themselves do not know or do not agree with. My friends, I would say to you today that are woe unto those shepherds who do not hold their responsibilities in the same vein in which the scriptures teach them that they should. Elders must practice a zero tolerance policy toward any and all religious area. And unfortunately, many churches have been undermined by or lost to various erroneous isms advocated by brethren through the years because elders were either inattentive, apathetic, ignorant, or cowardly, spiritual cowards.
We've had several brethren parading around the brotherhood for over 25 years with their false doctrine, and we have elders who are still pleading ignorance about them. And we've got some elders as well as preachers and school administrators who claim that they are too interested in spiritual things and the souls of men to keep up with the various false doctrines and false issues. But my friends, I can't see much interest in spiritual things when men willfully remain ignorant of damnable heresies and their sources. And neither do I see a great love for souls demonstrated when those charged with their care choose to remain unprepared to protect them. Sad for me to say, but unfortunately, courageous, faithful elders in our time are in terribly short supply. But my friends, as we end today, I would ask you this question, particularly for those who attend Waterview Church of Christ in Richardson, Texas, and Wiley Church of Christ in Wiley, Texas, where I've given you specific examples of your elderships who have failed you in regards to keeping your church defended against sin. Why are you still allowing them to be the overseers for your soul?